Hi there, and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. This podcast comes to you from the 2022 Lives Conference in Paris. Disseminated intravascular coagulation is the endpoint of a range of different conditions, including sepsis. How does this important clinical condition evolve, and what can we do about it? Miriam Backler is a senior postdoc researcher in surgery at the Department of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care Medicine at Innsbruck in Austria. Her key interests are coagulation in critical care, particularly after inflammatory diseases. And she joins me today to talk about DIC and sepsis. Miriam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy just for the invitation. Thank you very much for that. Miriam, what are the pathological processes that are happening during DIC? Well, this uh, depends very much on the underlying disease. Um, at the end, DIC is a systemic activation of coagulation and with the loss of localization, that's the problem. And you have different underlying diseases what can cause DIC, like malignancies, trauma, cardiogenic shock, acute ischemic injury, and also the systemic inflammatory diseases such as sepsis. And now it differs. In trauma, you have a huge injury of your tissue, and then there are damage-associated patterns uh, released, the so-called um, dams. And these are, for instance, DNA or histones or also soluble tissue factor collagen and they can activate coagulation directly, but they also can activate further cells and many different cell types. And they then react with tissue factor expression, and they also can release procoagulant microparticles. And the platelet-derived microparticles are very are highly procoagulant, and they are released during the acute phase in trauma. And you find these procoagulant microparticles also from other cell types, for instance, endothelial cells, and uh, they carry tissue factor with them. And uh, endothelial cells are activated not only because of the injury itself, and also not only because of the dams, but also due to hypoperfusion and also the reperfusion afterwards. And this then leads to, uh, leads, to a re uh, leads to a release of the profibrinolytic factors and hypofibrinolysis. And so you have the problem in trauma that uh, you have activation of coagulation factors and platelets, and then you consume them. Then you have a loss of them due to bleeding. And then you have often the delusional coagulopathy. And uh, this is also called the trauma-induced coagulopathy. In sepsis, you have it differently because in sepsis, you have an infection and then you have the pathogen associated molecular patterns, the PAMs, and they can also activate uh, coagulation directly and they also can activate further cells like in trauma and they would react uh, similarly. And you also have the problem that you have a release of inflammatory mediators, which then in turn activate further cells. And if you have cells destroyed due to infection, like in COVID-19, then also these dams are released. So you have a huge systemic activation of the coagulation. And at the same time, uh, you have a decrease of the anticoagulatory factors as well. 
And uh, if you have an activation of the endothelium, then it switches from an anticoagulatory state into a procoagulatory state. It loses the glycocalyx. Um, and it also uh, exposed tissue factor and von Willebrand factor is released. And so the coagulation activation is reinforced. And what we have in sepsis more and what is um, our new findings also due to the COVID-19 pandemic is the so-called netosis. Here, neutrophil, neutrophils undergo apoptosis and release their DNA into the cellular uh, extracellular room. And the goal is that pathogens get um, caught and then killed because of uh, many cytotoxic uh, molecules which are released during this process, like um, histones or also extracellular DNA again. And uh, these can activate uh, the coagulation directly and also harm the cells around the netosis. And then you have a further activation and a further coagulatory activation. And different to TIC, the trauma-induced coagulopathy, you have a release of antifibrinolytic factors. And this leads to a hypofibrinolysis, uh, impaired fibrinolysis. And uh, this picture is called sepsis-induced uh, coagulopathy, SIC. Miriam, how do these processes ultimately lead to harm for the patient? Well, if we speak of, I mean, in trauma, it's clear it's the bleeding. In uh, in if we speak of sepsis, you have um, high amount of fibrin deposition. For instance, in the lung, it um, inhibits or impairs the oxygen exchange, or you have microthrombosis in your organs. This leads to um, hypoperfusion and then also reperfusion injury once they are uh, fibrinolyzed. And um, at the end, you have organ failure. And also the macrothrombosis and bleeding, which can occur depending on the localization um, and severity, it can be life-threatening or directly lead to death. So ultimately, what are the features that patients have? Are there different ways that this is expressed in, in different groups of patients? It is, but it's really um, hard to realize in the very early stage. But in the in the later stage, you have a um, you have a bleeding phenotype, and you have a thrombotic phenotype, and this very much depends on the underlying disease. So trauma or cardiogenic shock or um, acute leukemia can cause the bleeding phenotype, whereas inflammatory diseases like serous or sepsis lead to a thrombotic phenotype. But at the end, you have a systemic coagulation activation and depletion. And what you have to know as well is uh, that you can switch between the phenotypes. So if I have a thrombotic phenotype, when once your factors and platelets are consumed and depleted, you can switch into the bleeding phenotype. And after trauma, it's always before inflammation, so you can switch into the thrombotic phenotype. And so in the course of disease, you have the problem of both thrombosis and bleeding. Is there a gold standard for how DIC is defined in an investigation sense? How do we know that somebody has got DIC, particularly early in the disease? Well, I think uh, the most important is to know which diseases can cause DIC, to find it early enough. But unfortunately, 
where you have the scores and you have the clinical manifestations. And if you realize the clinical manifestations and you fulfill the DIC score, it's often too late. It's very a progressed DIC. So it's really problematic to find DIC early enough. What are the common um, pathological or, sorry, pathology results that you would expect to see in somebody with DRC? If you speak of laboratory parameters, um, well, unfortunately, there is no single biomarker parameter which would indicate uh, early DIC. It's more the dynamics of the pattern. And here, the combination of uh, coagulation factors and inflammatory factors is very important. So if you speak of uh, sepsis DAC, you have an increase of the procoagulatory factors, like fibrinogen would be above uh, the norm values of healthy people, and this is good. And if fibrinogen de uh, decreases to these so-called norm values, then it's a bad sign if the inflammatory parameters do not decrease as well. So it's really more the dynamics and the patterns. Are there likely to be markers coming up in the future that will help us to diagnose uh, DIC earlier in the process, do you think? Um, I hope, I hope, I really hope. Um, and I think these uh, biomarkers will come uh, from the early drivers of DAC, like netosis or glycocalyx shedding, like syndagan, and also endothelial activation markers, adhesion markers, and also the netosis markers. And I also hope it's not only the biomarkers we can have from these processes, but also future treatment targets. That would be great. But a lot of research needs to be done in that regard. What about at the bedside testing with things like vesicoelastic testing? Do they have a role in the diagnosis and management? They have. They're, they are becoming more and more important. It's not, not only with the trauma DAC where you can de detect uh, hypocoagulability, but you also can detect hypercoagulability. So, for instance, high maximum clot firmness. Um, but here you need to be careful with the interpretation because if you have sepsis and you have a high clot firmness, that does not mean that you are at the increased risk of thrombosis. There is no study indicating this. Indeed, it's like if you have a high maximum clot firmness of uh, the fibrinogen assays, you are more likely to survive. But the viscoelastic tests have the advantage that you can also measure fibrinolysis. So you have the uh, lysis index or maximum lysis, and this um, tells you how much of the clot is dissolved after 30, 45, or 60 minutes. And some studies already showed that this is associated with uh, thrombosis and worse outcome. But you need to be careful because it's not only fibrinolysis what you measure with these parameters, it's also clot retraction. But here we know our knowledge is very restricted. We need further researchers again. But we here in Europe, I don't know if it's in Australia already available. It's Clot Pro. They have a TPA assay. And this is an assay where you add tissue derived plasminogen activator and then you measure the time to lysis or the, how, uh, the time of 50% of your clot is lysed. 
And this is maybe in future a really important essay to assess the impact fibrinolysis in sepsis-associated DIC. So we will see, but we need more research done on that. In practical terms, what do you recommend uh, clinicians uh, do in terms of diagnosing and monitoring the progress of DIC at the bedside? Well, we are doing um, viscoelastic tests at the beginning and then uh, after two days to see the dynamics. And also we compared with the pattern of laboratory parameters uh, as I said before, combine coagulatory uh, parameters with inflammatory parameters and then the quality of your clot with viscoelastic test testings and then watch the dynamics. So once you decide that somebody does have DIC, what can we do about it? I think the most important is to treat the underlying disease. But in, um, in sepsis, for sure, um, you have to use anticoagulation early enough. And there is, we learned a lot uh, in COVID-19 pandemics, although many COVID patients do not develop the classical uh, DAC because it's not so much systemic, it's more localized, but uh, the pattern mechanisms are very similar. So what um, anticoagulant would you recommend? What is the best and what is the evidence base for them? Well, there's not much evidence, unfortunately. Um, there, the guidelines, they recommend a low molecular weight heparin over unfractionated heparin. But if you look into the recommendations, they compare low molecular weight heparin with uh, unfractionated heparin administered subcontinuously. And uh, difficult word. <laughs> For me and um, we know that if you give unfractionated heparin intravenously it, it's way more effective and to choose the right anticoagulants you have to know how stable your patient is is it is the patient stable enough to receive low molecular weight heparin because it has a longer half-life time or if you need quick dose adjustments if you need continuous uh, anticoagulation maybe a full reversal. So these are the questions. And we are also using a direct thrombin inhibitor. This is agatroban. And uh, we are using it for thromboprophylaxis for continuous anticoagulation, but uh, it's off-label in Austria. And we also use it in most of our ECMO patients and patients for sure with heparin resistance. Tell us about heparin resistance in this sort of circumstance. Yeah, heparin resistance is a problem. Uh, first, you need to find out if it's a real heparin resistance or if the patients uh, have low antithrombine levels because for the depending on the heparins you use, you need 40 to 60% of antithrombine levels for the full efficacy of heparins. Um, but uh, if you have to use very high doses of uh, heparin and you still do not reach your anticoagulation target, then it's most likely a heparin resistance. And here, heparin 
binds to acute phase proteins, cytokines, and many other inflammatory mediators um, other than antithrombin, where you need it for the anticoagulatory effect. And with unfractionated heparin is more common than with low molecular weight heparins. How do you monitor the effectiveness of your anticoagulant therapy in DIC? That's a good question. Um, different and um, in critically ill, it's really problematic because for unfractionated heparin or agatroban, you usually use um, APTT, but this is very easily confounded in critically ill because they often suffer from factor deficiencies of the calicrine kinin pathway, which is the feedback loop of factor 12 or also factor 12 uh, deficiency. We found if factor 12 is decreasing below 43-42%, then you have most likely um, artificial prolongation of your APTT. So we are using anti-TNA assays for the heparins and for agatroban we use diluted thrombin time. Miriam, what else might be effective in this uh, um, in this condition, do you think? At the moment, we do not have much, much options, many options. Um, well, we had antithrombine, you know, the Kybercept trial, it failed. But in my opinion, it did not fully fail because we learned a lot. Um, in a subgroup analysis, they found if the patients do not receive concomitant heparin, then these patients had a survival benefit because... Antithrombine also has an anti-inflammatory um, property, especially it protects the glycocalyx from shedding. And this is what we need in DIC. And if you give concomitantly heparin, you cover these binding sites. And also we learned that we in coagulatory treatments, you shouldn't go for the goal of one size fits all. You need a somehow goal-directed administration of these agents. Now, there's a number of other agents that have been tried, including thrombomodulin and APC. Why do you think that these therapies haven't been effective in the trials that have been done? Well, I think in most cases, it's the same problem. You, um, the one size fits all approach. And also that you do not uh, select your patient individually or specifically. They, in the Prowess 2 study, they used all septic shock patients, and uh, but in the severe sepsis or sepsis, it worked. So maybe we just need to learn more on what specific patient population would benefit the most and also to have an indi individualized um, approach. I think that's really, really important. And also we shouldn't forget about the treatments uh, beside this anticoagulatory treatment because maybe it's the bundle of treatments what makes your agent effic um, efficient or not. Miriam, um, one of the temptations in DIC is to treat the numbers and replace coagulation factors that have been consumed. What happens when we do that? Is that an effective way of managing DIC? I don't think so. 
it depends on if if patients are really at high risk of bleeding or are actively bleeding. For sure, you have to do something, especially if it's a life threatening bleeding. Um, and it also depends on the factor. Like, I mean, antithrombin is decreased, and uh, if you substitute antithrombin, it it could be um, promising. But to substitute procoagulant factors, I think this is really uh, dangerous if you do it prophylactic. Finally, Miriam, where would you like to see research focus going forwards? What are the great questions that you have? First of all, my biggest wish is to have a huge trial on different anticoagulatory regimes to compare low molecular weight heparin, unfractionated heparin, agatroban um, for thromboprophylaxis to have a final evidence and also the time point when we should start with our anticoagulation. And then for sure, further research needs to be done on the drivers of uh, DAC, also to have better monitoring options, but also to have future targets to treat DAC early enough. These are my wishes. Miriam, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your immense knowledge on DIC with us. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. All of Osler's content and features are completely free. Get access to all our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes, and articles by downloading our free app. You'll also be able to access our logbook, and any Osler learning you do is automatically recorded in your CPD diary. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps, or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.